Hello and welcome to episode 116 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story has been researched and written by listener Stuart Henry. Stuart, thanks ever so much. For today's story, we go back to New Year's Eve 1996 and a terrible crime that rocked a whole city and is still regularly spoken about today. But before we begin, a huge thank you to my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new additions to this exclusive club. That's Lynn Hanbury, Valerie Urban and Saffron Rogers. Thank you so much for your support, and full-length bonus episode 25 is released this week. More good news this week is that we now have over 2,000 people in our Facebook group. If you aren't one of them, why not? Come and join the conversation today about all aspects of UK true crime. So let's set some context for the story today. Number one in the UK charts at the time was the Spice Girls with Two Become One, which was also Christmas number one the week before. It was great times for the Spice Girls as they also topped the album charts with Spice, a visionary song anticipating the misery of synthetic drugs in the future. In the US, it was Tony Braxton at number one with the somewhat turgid Unbreak My Heart. I think she's currently starring, if that's the word, in the US edition of Big Brother. And no doubt topped the album charts with Tragic Kingdom. In Australia, ironically, it was Alanis Morissette topping the charts with Jagged Little Pill. In the news this month, Kofi Annan was elected Secretary General of the United Nations. The classic film Scream was released to cinemas. Over 50 gallons of blood was used making that film. And in the UK, the legend that was Willie Rushton died at just 59. He was a cartoonist, comedian and writer who, among other things, co-founded the excellent Private Eye. And in sport, Australian rugby union winger David Campese ended his 15-year, 101 test career at Cardiff Arms Park in Wales with a victory over Wales. I was a huge fan of Campo as a player, and I love him as a pundit too. Do you? Today's story is from Sutton Coldfield, a town of almost 100,000 people that lies just north of Birmingham in the middle of England. Famous people from here include footballer Paul Merson and the classic actor Dennis Waterman. It's an affluent town, ranked as the fourth least deprived area in the country, and unsurprisingly, crime is low, which made the events of New Year's Eve 1996 even more shocking. Nicola Dixon was nine when she moved from Northumberland to Sutton Coldfield with her parents Andy and Rita and her brother Graham. By 1996, Nicola was 17 years old and a pretty and petite girl with dark hair. She was a popular sixth former who was very creative and was studying art and photography for A-levels. She'd been due to go away with her family to Northumberland to celebrate New Year with relatives, but in the end, she decided to stay behind in Sutton Coalfield to take her driving test. However, the test was cancelled due to snow, and so Nicola decided to spend New Year's Eve with some friends. She was so looking forward to it. Do you recall just how exciting those big nights with friends were when you were 17? Dressed in a leopard print blouse, black trousers, and a leather jacket, the first venue of the evening was a hospital social club. She left there to meet friends at a party in a pub at the town centre. But she left the pub alone 
and set off on the half-mile walk back to her house, which would take around 10 minutes. But Nicola would never make it home. Just on the edge of the town centre, she made the decision to cut down an alley, and there she was attacked. A man dragged her into the gardens of a minister's house in the grounds of Holy Trinity Church, where a fierce struggle ensued. Nicola escaped, and she was about to get away as she climbed a gate to get back onto the street, but her attacker grabbed her around the neck and pulled her back. He then repeatedly smashed her head against the pavement, causing severe head injuries before raping Nicola. Can you imagine just the sheer terror she must have felt? He then dragged her to the back door of the unoccupied minister's house and left her to die. As midnight struck, the country celebrated the beginning of the new year. Nicola's friends and family celebrated completely unaware that Nicola's bloodied, lifeless body lay in the snow. This was the last New Year's Eve that they'd ever feel able to properly celebrate. At 10am the following morning, New Year's Day, Nicola's battered, partially clothed body was found by Minister's wife Valerie Connolly in the grounds of the church. Describing the moment she found the body, she said, I stood there and looked down and saw a person lying there. My first thought was perhaps someone had had too much to drink and had collapsed there. But then I thought that in those conditions, if someone had collapsed, then they wouldn't have survived. WPC Ruth Wilkins, who was one of the first four officers at the scene, said that when she peered over the wall into the grounds of the house, she just saw two pools of blood. News of the murder quickly made local and national headlines and shocked the town to its core. Nicola's 46-year-old dad, Andy, a civil engineer, later described the moment it sank in that it was his daughter's body that had been found. There's never been the cliché when you think it's all just been a dream, but there have been moments when we've thought, this just can't be right. I think we were lucky that we never had any doubt that it was Nicola. In different circumstances, perhaps, we'd have hoped that there'd been a mistake. But there's only ever been a few minutes when we could have harboured that doubt. It was very out of character for her not to have called us as promised that night. She'd never done anything like that before. But there are 101 reasons why kids might not call or go home when they say they're going to. And you can invent far more plausible reasons than what actually happened. Yet what actually happened is the one you worry most about as a parent. West Midlands Police were under pressure to get a result quickly and launched one of its biggest ever manhunts with extra police drafted into the squad hunting the killer. Forensic experts scoured the snowy murder scene in the picturesque grounds of the church and recovered crucial evidence left behind by the killer. A vaginal swab showed traces of semen so the police had the killer's DNA, but frustratingly, there was no immediate match. The profile was uploaded to the then-fledgling National DNA Database, formed in 1995, and officers routinely monitored the system for comparisons with new additions. As part of the search, an Afro-Caribbean hair was also found near to where the body lay, which detectives hoped could play a part in solving the hunt for the murderer. The huge police operation involved more than 100 officers, 
who interviewed over 11,000 people and took over 6,000 statements. They also took DNA samples from 9,000 men from the area. But although the police hoped for a quick breakthrough, it continued to elude them. Nicola's ex-boyfriend, James Winfield, was one of the many interviewed. The two had recently split but were still close. Further investigations meant that James was quickly eliminated from the inquiry, and more about him later. The murder was featured on the True Crime Enthusiast's favourite programme, the BBC's Crime Watch. That was when it was still an incredibly relevant must-watch programme, before they started standing around and doing all sorts of weird and wacky and trendy things. A reward of £20,000 was offered, but although there was a good response, the lead they hoped for just didn't materialise. Frustratingly, despite all the effort and hard work, the police were no nearer catching the killer than in the days immediately following the murder. On the day that Nicola was buried, her funeral procession paused at Trinity Hill, the spot where she was killed, so her parents could lay a wreath. But hanging over the whole dreadfully sad occasion was the knowledge that their daughter's killer was still free and they could not fully lay her to rest until he was caught. Seven months after the killing, a man named Colin Waite from Birmingham broke the jaw of his girlfriend Christine Lowndes in a vicious domestic assault. The 36-year-old father of three was arrested, charged and a DNA sample taken. But an error, later described by West Midlands police as a problem with the packaging of the sample, meant that the DNA was never sent to the Forensic Science Service for testing. As it turned out, this would be a catastrophic mistake. Another sample could not be taken from weight because the Police and Criminal Evidence Act did not allow it. In February 1998, Waite was convicted of assault occasioning actual bodily harm in relation to the attack on his girlfriend and was jailed for four and a half years. Unbeknown to police, they had let Nicola's killer slip through their fingers due to a technical error and a properly taken DNA sample would have placed weight behind bars for Nicola's murder. But instead, her family and friends were left waiting and hoping. So who was this man, Colin Waite? He was born in February 1961 to parents Iona and Eustace, and was christened Cecil Iram. His mother later changed his name to Colin when he was 15. His recorded offending had started as early as 1979, when he was just 18. His repeat offending continued throughout his life, and he'd been convicted on numerous occasions for dishonesty, assault, criminal damage, and possession of controlled drugs. In 1992, he was jailed for six months for an assault on his then-partner, which was witnessed by children. Class. He was also later imprisoned for a wounding offence. Then for a time, it is thought he left the country for Australia. But the dad of three children, unfortunately, was back in the country in December 1996, when he was a driver for Hart's car hire at the time of Nicola's murder. He lived with his girlfriend, Christine Lowndes, in the Bordesley Green area of Birmingham, after meeting her when they both worked at Cadbury's Bourneville factory. And it was shortly afterwards, in February 1998, when he was jailed for that cowardly attack on his girlfriend. As Nicola's parents waited for the killer to be found, they continued with their plans for remembering their daughter. 
As you will recall, Nicola was very creative and artistic, and in 2001, a memorial to Nicola based on one of her own pieces of art was unveiled by her parents. It stands near the spot where she was killed. In the same year, Waite was released early from his sentence and managed to find work at ES Car Credit. At this time, over four years after the killing, the investigation into Nicola's murder had, of course, been wound down. Her killer was free, and he no doubt believed that he got away with this awful crime. Due to the DNA error and law restrictions, he had literally got away with murder. And that was likely to have been the case if he'd just led a quiet, law-abiding life. But Colin Waite, well, he couldn't stay out of trouble. And this time there'll be no mistakes in finally bringing him to justice. A year after he was released for the assault on his girlfriend, Waite was involved in a road rage incident. He chased and assaulted a middle-aged man, Adam Price, after arguing with him and his wife in Birmingham city centre. You would think that he would have realised that this could have led to him losing his liberty for murdering Nicola, but it was clear that Waite, as well as not being the brightest tool in the box, was volatile, arrogant, and not a man able to keep a check on his temper. Police took another DNA test, which was run through the National Crime Database, and this time, there was a match. Detectives were delighted to tell Nicola's family the news that they'd found her killer, and they would have the opportunity to see him face justice for his crime in court. In November 2003, Colin Waite faced a jury at Warwick Crown Court charged with murder, which he denied. He claimed that he couldn't have killed Nicola as he had spent the night with his girlfriend and brother in Birmingham. But this story took a bit of a hammering when giving evidence, then-girlfriend Christine, who'd split from Waite in 97 following his attack on her, said that she'd not seen Waite on the evening of the murder and she had spent that evening with her mum. CCTV footage showed a man similar to Waite leaving Sutton Coldfield's Good Hope Hospital where Nicola had been at a party, suggesting that he'd followed her. But it wasn't conclusive. It was the DNA that would be the crucial evidence. Semen found on Nicola's body and a hair found nearby both matched Waite. The prosecution said that the DNA found at the scene had a probability of a billion to one of coming from someone other than the defendant but Waite continued to insist that he had never met Nicola. After the seven-day trial, the jury retired to consider their verdict, and just 27 minutes later, they returned to find him unanimously guilty. Nearly seven years after the murder, justice was finally done. Waite was sentenced to life in prison. During sentencing, Mr Justice Hughes described him as a violent and dangerous man who'd committed the crime for his own sexual gratification. He said, You attacked this girl of 17 when she was a complete stranger. You were nearly 20 years older than she was. You raped her and you killed her using considerable violence to achieve your sexual ends or possibly to prevent her from reporting what you had done. Waite's relatives and friends displayed their class and their charm by causing a near riot in the public gallery when it was announced he was guilty. And Waite's brother was detained by police after shouting at the jury and attacking camera crews with a walking stick outside the court. His family had played a confusing part in the trial, with his walking stick-wielding brother 
and two of his sisters providing him with a false alibi for the night of Nicola's murder. Interestingly, no one was ever charged with perjury. I wonder why that was, do you think? Outside court, Timothy Raggett, prosecuting, said there was an obvious sexual motive to the crime, but beyond that there was no known reason why Waite chose Nicola. They were complete strangers. And Detective Superintendent Matt Sawyers, who led the murder inquiry, said that Waite had never shown any remorse for Nicola's murder. He said there was neither a motive for the murder, and how Waite met Nicola on the night of her death had never been fully established, although they suspected he followed her from the hospital. The only connection between Waite and Sutton Coldfield was his brother, who lived on a nearby estate. After the verdict, Nicola's dad, Andy, said, What we have sat through has been absolutely dreadful. We are in no doubt now that this was a vicious attack from the start and nothing else. Today, Nicola got justice at last. And her mum, Rita, added, We have relived the horrific attack on Nicola. She suffered a sudden, brutal and sustained assault. Her knuckles were bruised and it had been typical for Nicola to have fought back. But in reality, she never stood a chance. Talking about Waite's arrest, she said, It was a shock when we were told, but we'd always felt it would happen. We just didn't realise how long it would take. We said all along that we felt that when nobody was arrested quickly, it would be DNA that would trap someone. Talking about the approaching New Year, she said, New Year's Eve is always very difficult. We spend it with close friends. We haven't had a lively New Year for a long time, but I don't think it's going to change. You are always very aware of it. And Nicola's granddad, Bill Robertson, said, It's a relief, but Nicola will never come back. I'm pleased justice has been done, but it's not something we can really celebrate. The police were always going to face criticism following their error which delayed justice for weight. But Detective Superintendent Sawyer defended the investigation and dismissed any suggestion that police were lucky to have caught the killer. He said, It's possible that Waite could have been arrested earlier if the sample had been loaded on the DNA database. That's true. But I do not accept the charge of luck. This is an investigative process that came from the case and the forensic science procedures in recovering the sample in the first place. No stone had been left unturned That is not luck in my view. That is the inevitability of justice following the scientific advances. And Nicola's parents never blamed the police for the error. In fact, they praised them for never giving up and for their snowflake-by-snowflake search that unveiled the evidence that trapped Colin Waite. Although it's only of limited significance for her family, Nicola Dixon's lasting legacy is that her case led to the law being changed When it was discovered that Wade had been in prison for three years without the authorities having a DNA sample, wheels were set in motion to tighten that loophole. And in January 2003, it was announced that the DNA profiles of 13,000 prisoners were to be added to the National Police Database. The decision, announced by the Home Office, said that this mopping up operation was part of the government's aim to collect the DNA of all known criminals by April 2004. On this podcast, I like to look at people related to a case and the wider effects the story has had on them and the course of their lives. Today, in this story, following Nicola's death, her former boyfriend had his own troubles in life. 
James Winfield had dated Nicola for most of 1996, but the couple split up just before she was killed. Her death had a terrible effect on him. He was a young police officer at the time of the murder, and as is always the case with family and partners and ex-partners, he naturally came under suspicion. In the end, he was interviewed four times by murder squad detectives before being eliminated by DNA, a process which really took its toll on James. And with weight still on the loose, many still looked on him as a prime suspect. 18 months after the murder, he resigned from the police force, fell into acute depression and started to drink, and drink heavily. Three years after the murder, while still suffering from poor mental health, in addition to debt issues. His situation declined further when he robbed a petrol station cashier at Knife Point. The court heard later how he confronted a terrified assistant, wearing a balaclava mask and brandishing a knife with a jagged edge, at the jet service station in Sutton Coalfield. He lunged at the 20-year-old cashier when he tried to press a panic button. He grabbed £125 from a till and ran off, but he was found by police a short time later hiding in bushes nearby. Yep, he was no pro, just a desperate, desperate man. Winfield pleaded guilty to robbery and sentencing him at Birmingham Crown Court. The judge said there was no doubt the effect of Nicola's death on him had been a key factor in his committing the offence and showed leniency, sentencing him to a two-year suspended prison sentence, giving him time and space to start to rebuild his life. Colin Waite is eligible for parole in 2022, in just three years' time, when he'll be 61. In an interview from 2007, Nicola's granddad Bill said, What happened took a tremendous toll on our family. It still affects us today. He took my granddaughter's life away. She was a lovely girl, and he did this terrible thing for no reason that we know. He should never be let out from behind bars again, because he's been a bad man. I would like to see him die in jail. And Nicola's mum, Rita, said, Her death shocked the community and her loss is still felt by all who knew her. To us, she was the perfect daughter, sister and friend. She was simply the best. So what do you make of what you've heard today? It's every parent's worst nightmare, isn't it? As our children reach those teenage years and beyond, they need the freedom to live their lives and make their own mistakes, as we did. And it was just such bad luck that Nicola was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Think how many times you've put yourself in a dangerous situation, but luckily it worked out for you and you stayed safe. Maybe if you turned the other corner that day, things might have been so, so different. Nicola would have been approaching 40 now, and her family and friends will never know just what she could have achieved in her life. As for Colin Waite, he's the worst sort of predator, I think. I wonder how his children feel about him now, and whether they're still in contact. Being a father himself, I struggle with how he was able to do this to somebody else's child, but he did, and he almost got away with it. I wonder how many other crimes he was responsible for. There were lots of rumours, but so far, no further charges. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please come and join us on Facebook to discuss this case or any other aspect of UK True Crime. And to support the show and access the soon-to-be 25 full-length bonus episodes 
and other exclusive content, please head to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash UK True Crime. You know you want to. So that is all for me for now. Another huge thank you to Stuart Henry for bringing us this story. And until we speak again next week, take it easy and remember, stay classy. Cheerio for now.